Well, good morning, church. I want to say hi to everyone who is joining us from every home, every venue, every kitchen table, every living room sofa. Thank you for joining us online for worship. And thank you especially for joining us today as we launch this new series that will carry us through the spring season. The series begins with this awareness that there is something embedded inside of us that wants to make absolutely sure that we can trust whoever or whatever is in charge of the things going on in our lives. I want you to imagine this little thought experiment. Imagine that you have boarded a plane and you're taxiing down the runway, and after you achieve safe altitude, the captain's voice comes over the PA and says, thank you for joining us on today's airline. I wanted to announce that today is my last flight, and after many decades in the captain's chair, I am retiring. And you can well imagine that that kind of announcement would be met with cheers and applause and congratulations. Now, let's shift the experiment just a little bit. Same setup, same situation. The plane taxis down the runway. It, it achieves safe altitude. The voice of the captain comes over the cabin and says, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I just wanted to welcome you and let you know that this is my very first flight. I've never really flown a plane like this before. Now, the, re, the result is probably not cheers. It's probably not appreciation or congratulation. Why? Because we want to know that we can trust the person who's flying the plane. Now, supposedly, and I don't know whether the story is true or not, but supposedly very early in his comedy career, Robin Williams got a hold of a captain's uniform and he put it on in the, uh, in the plane's lavatory. And at, starting at the back of the plane, he made his way forward, greeting all the passengers as if he was the captain. While he was doing that, the captain, as they will often do, left the cabin and left the plane in the care and the, and the good keeping of the co-pilot. And he started making his way down the cabin, greeting and welcoming people from the front. And the two of them met in the middle, both of them wearing the captain's uniform, both looking at each other, and Robin Williams screams out, who's flying the plane? It sounds like one of those stories that's probably, probably too good to have actually been true, but, but you get the point. Is there somebody in charge, somebody that we can trust? And it's not just on an airplane. It comes uh, into play when we think about the doctors that we entrust with our care, the teachers to whom we entrust our kids, the appliances that service our homes. We want to know, are they dependable? Can we trust them? And if we can, there's a freedom in that, isn't there? There's a confidence in that. And if we can't, we're just kind of left all knotted up inside. Ultimately, where all this lands as we move up the ladder of authority is with God himself, because we want to know, we need to know that there is something that is greater, some intelligence, hopefully some compassionate intelligence and design behind the universe. Is there someone in charge? Do they know what they're doing? Am I at risk? Am I just the victim, the perilous victim of all the circumstances of my life? 
Or is there something good, something responsible, something benevolent and powerful in charge of it all? Well, here's the truth about us. We will either live at the mercy of God or we will live at the mercy of our circumstances. So today we're launching into this new series. We've titled it Navigating Life. And it starts with the simple awareness that as we make our way through life, things happen. I mean, that's just the way it goes. Things happen. We're going to confront one of the primary illusions of our culture and of our age. And the illusion is this, that in the end, I'm in control that I'm in control of things, that I'm at the wheel, that I'm sufficient, that I can run things. And that illusion, that illusion is pretty safe until something happens, until a blood vessel bursts or a cancer cell multiplies or somebody in their car goes plowing through the red light at the intersection and then it becomes terribly clear what a fool I was. We're not in control of everything. Stuff happens. In fact, that's not just true about the big crises in life. It's true about all kinds of things, isn't it? Birth happens. Growth happens. Puberty happens. Though nobody votes for that. Whoever voted for that. Trouble happens. Suffering happens. But also growth happens. Healing happens. Inevitably, also death happens. And what we're going to try and do over the course of the series is learn how God is involved in all of the happenings, all of the stuff of our life. How do we navigate our way through all the stuff that happens when we accept the fact that a lot of what happens is not in our control? Things happen. But that doesn't mean God isn't involved in them. And if I can learn to live in that reality, if I can see where God is involved in all the stuff that's happening in my life, I can live with a freedom and ease and a confidence and a growth that is, it's just absolutely liberating. So that's really what we're aiming for. I don't have to live at the mercy of my circumstances because I serve a God who is above my circumstances. And that truth, that truth has probably probably never been expressed more powerfully than it was many centuries ago by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words. See if this doesn't strike a chord of familiarity with many of you. These are the words from Romans 8, verse 28. Paul says, and we know this. We know that in all things, God is at work for good, for those who love him. In fact, over the next few weeks, I'm hoping that you will commit that one single verse to memory. In fact, by the end of today, I hope you've committed it to memory. In fact, let's start by by trying to get it into our memories now. Let's say that together. And we know this, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Let's say it again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And really, all I want to do today in the opening message of this series is take that one verse, that pivotal verse, 
and move through it one phrase at a time and, and just try and get it really embedded in our minds. We're actually going to start with the second phrase and we'll go from that phrase all the way through to the end and then when we reach the end, we'll come back and we'll read that first phrase again. So let's start with this, the second phrase, that phrase that says, in all things. What's really important about that phrase and about this verse is that all of the circumstances of our lives actually happen to all of us. Now, that may sound like a silly thing to say, but there's even a sillier thing that sometimes we're tempted to believe, and it's that if we become a follower of Jesus, if we become Christian, that there are certain things that that won't happen to us. Folks, the Christian faith is not a vaccine to the problems of the world. When Paul says, in all things, the the word that he's using there, it's it's a rich word in in his language. The word is panta. It's a single word, panta. And, And it could be translated as all stuff, all things, all circumstances. I went to McMaster University for my graduate degree. There on the crest, the motto for the university are the words in Greek, tapanta on Christoi sunestekin. In Christ, all things, panta, hold together. In the same way, in all things, in all circumstances, and in all the events of our lives, this verse applies. And the idea here is that that all things are going to happen to people. They're going to happen to people who believe in God and love God, and they're going to happen to people who don't know God or who disregard God. Maybe you want to think about it like this. There, There are probably, broadly speaking, two categories of things that are going to happen in life. There's the good stuff. And then there's the bad stuff. We, we crave the one, we try and avoid the other. Let's, let's just run through some possibilities so we're clear on the difference. A promotion, good stuff. An illness, bad stuff. A blind date, hmm. well, maybe could be either. Entering a contest and winning a free all-expenses-paid vacation, good stuff. Entering a contest and winning a free all-expenses-paid vacation that turns out to be a festival cruise hosted by a group of mimes, maybe not good stuff. But the idea here, though, is that we all have good stuff and bad stuff that happens to us, and it happens to all of us. Why is it important to say that? Because very often, I think we, we, we hold out this carrot in front of people. We tantalize them with the false idea that if you become a Christian, it means that more good stuff than bad stuff is supposed to happen in your life, that it's somehow God's obligation to send you just the good stuff because you believe in him. Or they'll think that if I'm a Christian and you're not a Christian, then more good stuff ought to come my way than comes your way. And if more good stuff turns out to be coming your way than my way, well, you know where we're going with this. People get all twisted up and bent out of shape about this. 
And people begin to think, you know, if I want this good stuff to come into my life, then I'll be really faithful and I'll pray hard and I'll be really good when God is watching. And that means I ought to have a better shot at the good stuff coming into my life. And you know what that does? It it turns God into a kind of coin-operated dispenser of good things. We, prop, or we pop in our little bit of service or devotion or worship, and we expect to be dispensed back the good thing that we want. No. No. And this is really important. All things happen to all people. Traffic jams and problems at work and troublesome, cranky neighbors and and catching COVID, and having the dog get sick, and having appliances go out, whatever it is, it happens to people who love God, and it happens to people who are far from God. I'll take it a little step deeper. Terrible things happen. Terrible things happen to families who have faithfully loved and served and walked with Jesus their whole life. Families devastated by illness and tragedy. This spring, we buried both the parents of one of our dear families. Mom and dad both died within a week of each other, suddenly, unexpectedly. A friend of mine in university was diagnosed with a terrible form of cancer that he knew was going to end his life early, and it did. I don't feel cheated, though, he said. I don't feel cheated because I feel like God gave me the gift of this life and and time with my kids, and to be honest, I don't know how an attitude like that comes, but I know this, I know that all things happen to all people. And when a church gets glib about this, when somebody comes into the church and they just hear a bunch of happy talk about how if you love God, you're just going to have good things happen in your life all the time, it turns out that instead of being encouraging, that's demoralizing because it's inauthentic. And it kills people. I mean, it just kills people's hearts. Our job is not to give glib explanations for things that we do not fully understand. When folks suffer, and they do, they suffer deeply. The call of a Christ follower, the call of God's people, is to love and to mourn and to come alongside and to be family. And let me just say, if if something like that is happening right now in your life, I hope that we can do that with you. Uh, I hope that we can do that. I hope we can care for you. I, I hope that we can seek God and find God and, and gently find comfort together. And, and I hope you don't hear anything in the message today or in the weeks ahead that would try and deny or belittle the reality and the pain of what you're going through. Because the reality is this, all of us experience all kinds of circumstances. And how we handle that truth says something really important about who we are. I wanted to quote just a little bit from, from a writer who's a, a favorite of mine. His name is Henri Nouwen. This is what he said. Nouwen writes, at issue is the question, 
To whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits. A little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or to thrust me down. He goes on to say, often I'm like a small boat out on the ocean, completely at the mercy of the waves. All the time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance and preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle just for survival. Not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. The statement that Paul is making in Romans 8, 28, is not that more good stuff than bad stuff is going to happen. It's all things. It's all circumstances. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes on. So let's go on to that next phrase. He says, in all things what? In all things, God works. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that all things work out. In fact, in the very same passage, Paul makes a statement about the nature of things. He says that everything is in bondage to decay. And people will sometimes catch themselves saying, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. No, Actually, no, everything isn't always going to be okay. Paul actually says in the world that we live in because of the fall, because of sin, everything is in bondage to decay. Things fall apart. That's why there's mechanics and plumbers and and surgeons, because things fall apart. Why is it that that new car depreciates so dramatically in value the moment that you drive it off of the lot? Because we know that things fall apart. Why do you take out a warranty for an appliance? Because you know its time is limited. And you know inevitably, often the day after the warranty runs out, the thing begins to give out. Things fall apart. Why is it that people subscribe for an online dating service? When it comes time to write their profile, they post a photo of themselves from 12 years ago. I I know you do that, right? Things fall apart. See, the promise is not everything is going to work out. And the promise is not that things work together for good. Some things don't. Some some things are just in bondage to decay. But here's the promise. In all things, God is at work. In all things, God works. In all the circumstances of your life, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, God works. And so the question that, that inevitably should be asked is, well, what God Or what kind of God or or what kind of work would God be about? Well, this God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, throughout this series, we're going to be challenged to keep in mind just how vast and majestic and tremendous God is. That he is infinitely bigger than any of our circumstances. That he is the master and the maker of heaven and earth. In fact, I think it's worth pausing just for a moment to go through some of the things that the Bible says about this, about the vastness of God. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has, describing God, it says, God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand, he has marked out the heavens. Those of us who live in in big cities, we don't often get to appreciate the symphony of light and color that goes on in the heavens every single night. But if we, if we have a chance to get away from the persistent background illumination of the city to somewhere really isolated, really dark, and stare up into the night sky, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's like somebody's plugged in all the stars. It's electric. You can see the Milky Way as if it's just this vast cloud of gas. I was reading an astronomer this week, a Christian scientist. She's talking about the sky. She, she reminds us. She says, you know, in the observable universe, just the part that we can see, when we look at galaxies, we know a single galaxy can contain a trillion stars. And in the observable universe, just the part that we can see, there's thought to be 200 billion galaxies. And a single one of them can have as many as 100 trillion stars. And God made all of that. And he holds it in the palm of his hand. See, I think a lot of people, when we picture God, picture this vast, gigantic universe with a smaller God living in it. And that's exactly backwards. What it is, is a vast, unimaginably immense God with a universe that fits right here, right in the palm of his hand. Look at this verse, Psalm 40, verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the stars. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name? For because of his great power and his mighty strength, not a one of them is missing. But you know, it's a running joke in my family how often I misplace my glasses. I take them off and, and I can't find them. I know nobody here ever does something like that. But I was thinking about that little bit of ineptitude and then imagining this picture of a hundred trillion stars in each of 200 billion galaxies and not a single one of them lost. God never scratching his head saying, hey, where did I put Alpha Centauri? No, he holds the measure of them in his hand. And more than that, it says he's measured the waters and holds them there in the hollow of his hand. A couple of years ago, our family were vacationing on Cape Breton Island, and we chartered one of those boats off the north coast of the island to go whale watching. It was a Zodiac. You know, those are the, the inflatable boats with the hard bottoms that you often see Marines using for amphibious landing events. They're powerful boats. Man, are they fast. 
And we went out and we saw, we saw birds and seals and all kinds of aquatic life, but no whales. We had to turn around partway through the trip. Why? Because a storm started to roll in and the waves got higher. Uh, they got higher and higher to the place where the captain, thankfully a veteran captain, was having to run those twin outboard engines, enormous engines, full tilt, just to keep us riding along the crest of the waves. And he got us back safely, and, and he apologized and offered to return our money because we didn't see whales. But, you know, we were having nothing of it. We had such a blast the full power of the ocean was on display, and there we were riding on top of it. Who has measured the waters and holds them in the hollow of his hand? All of this, all of it is, is the handiwork of God and upheld by God. You know, the people of Israel would celebrate this over and over again. They would say to each other, it's the God who made heavens and earth who watches over you and me. Which leads to this, I think, kind of important question. Do you believe that God is still working? That the work of God didn't end with creation? Do you believe that God is working when you're not working? And often, I I think that it's tempting to live as though what Paul really wrote was, make sure that we're at work, you and I, in all circumstances, trying to do good, because if we don't, it won't get done. A really good question when you go to bed at night is, do you believe when you're not working that God is still working? And if you do, it will take a tremendous load off of you. I'm not in control not in control of weather or traffic or, or many of the circumstances of my own life. And as it turns out, that's probably a really good thing. But in all things, it is this great, this vast, majestic, limitless God. In all things, God works. So that's the God who works. But what is the work that God does? Well, let's read on. Paul says, in all things, God works. What's the next phrase? For the good. In all things, God works for the good. This is so important. God is at work for the best, for the good, for the favorable outcome. That's what we mean when we say, God bless you. We desire God's best for you. I have to tell you, this is, this is probably the part of this pivotal verse that is most often taken out of context and misunderstood. People think that what it means is, I want some good, some good circumstance in my life. I believe that God is at work for the good. So if I don't like the circumstance that I'm in, it is God's responsibility to give me a better circumstance. Because after all, he's at work for the good. If I don't get this great paying job, this verse must mean that God is going to give me a better paying job. If I don't get that terrific promotion, it must mean that God is sometime going to give me an even better promotion. If I don't get to marry this beautiful girl, well, I got to marry the beautiful girl, but you know what I mean. Here's a really important distinction. 
when we think about God working for the good of things, recognizing that things happen, all kinds of things, let's think about the category of the good things in life for a second. And I want you to to hold up the difference in this one little pronoun. Think about good things. Think about the good things that can happen to you. And think about the good things that can happen in you. Good things to you and good things in you. Now, generally, when we talk about good things, we're thinking about the things that we want to happen to us. Kids want this. Kids want this from their parents. They want good things to happen to them. Mom and dad, I I want a bigger allowance. I want lots of cool electronics. I want fun trips. But one of the things that we know when we love somebody is is that we are more concerned about good things happening in them than we are about good things happening to them. Because we love them. And we want them to be great people. Not just surrounded by good things. Of course, we also want good things to happen to them. But a parent, for example, if a parent really loves a child, a parent might actually be willing to make bad things happen to them. We call that punishment, don't we? Time out. We would make bad things happen to them in order that good things could happen in them. So good things to me, those are my circumstances, promotions, a job, a hot date, great house, lots of money, right? Versus good things that are happening in me. That's the character of Jesus. That's joy and peace and patience, a life of integrity. And the promise that Paul is making here, Romans 8, 28 It's not that good stuff is going to be happening to you. It's something more noble. It's something far more glorious than that. It's not just that good stuff is happening to you. It's that good stuff is happening in you. You get a sense of that when you read onward. Here's how the verse goes. Let me read through the whole thing. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his good Purpose. What's his purpose? For those God foreknew, he also predestined what? He predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. God's plan for you is not just that you have really good circumstances in your life. It's that you, that you have the character of Jesus. That you be conformed in the image of his son. And that's a gift that, has, that is measured in a span, not of years, but of eternity. And it's so much better. I mean, we're likely to think that of all the good circumstances we want God to give us, that on the top of the list would be the things that would make this life most bountiful. But God has something so much better in mind, something so much more that he's up to. We don't always, we don't always want it, but... But it's better. So here it is. God's promise is not to give you good stuff. God promises to use all the stuff that happens, the good things 
and the bad things, to use those things in you so that the character that Jesus has now, you will have through all eternity. In all things, God works together for good. And what's the last phrase? In all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. For whom? Those who love him. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite parts of that verse. And here's why. Paul, who wrote those words, he would have said every day, as every devoted Jew did, he would have said what was called the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word. It just means hear or listen. It's called the Shema because it's, it's the first word. It's a command. The first word of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Why did Israel... Why did they love that verse so much that they would repeat it every day, that they would write it everywhere? When Paul woke up, he would say those words, love the Lord your God. When he went to bed at night, he would say those same words, love the Lord your God. Why those words? Why were they so cherished? Because it meant that for the first time in history, human beings had discovered that the true God was a God who wanted to be loved. Nobody in the ancient world said, hey, I love Baal. I love Molech. A lot of people, when they think about God, think of this powerful being who just says, obey me, serve me, conform to what I say. Part of what Israel gave to this world is the idea that God desires to love and be loved in return. And one of the things that means is that that God is lovable. It's part of what needs to be really fixed in our minds. We're living in this world where so many things happen, all things happening. That God is lovable. Here's a few words from another favorite writer of mine. The book is called The Divine Conspiracy. The writer is Dallas Willard. And he says, you know, the acid test for any theology is this. Is the God presented one that can be loved, heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if the thoughtful, honest answer is not really, then we need to look elsewhere or deeper. It does not really matter how sophisticated intellectually or doctrinally our approach is. If it fails to set a lovable God, a radiant, happy, friendly, accessible, and totally competent before being, a totally competent being before ordinary people, then we have done wrong. And we should not keep going in the same direction, but turn around and take another road. I love that. In all things, God is at work for good for those who love him. Every moment, Whatever's going on in your life, God is at work for good for those who love him. Of course, that raises the question, well, what is God doing for people who don't know him, don't love him? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Jesus provided an answer for that question. You find it in Matthew chapter 5, 
If you flip in your Bibles to Matthew 5, you'll see it there in verse 44. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become a child of your Father in heaven. Why? Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the righteous. Understand what Jesus is saying. That God is at work for the good of those who love him. And he's also at work for the good of those who don't love him that much. He's just a lovable God. That doesn't mean that that we forsake the other qualities of God, like holiness and justice. But they're bound together in the lovableness of God. It's just kind of that that those, those who don't know him, who haven't come to love him, it just makes the job a lot harder. It's kind, of, it's kind of like the remedial group. But God hasn't given up on them. He's constantly at work for the good of you and every other being that he has ever made. And in eternity, one day, we'll see all of this in all things. It's just one more phrase. And that's the one where we go back to the very beginning. Remember how it starts? And we know this. And we know that in all things, God is at work for good for those who love him. That's such an important phrase. It's a phrase that, that Paul really, I think, wants us to grow into. Not And we think, or we guess, or we we hypothesize, we suspect. No, this is knowledge. We know this. This is a knowable thing. See, I want you to come to know this, Paul is saying. How do we do that? How do we become people who know it? Don't just suspect it or long for it, but we know it. Let me have you use your Bible again and flip with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 7 Verse 7, and there Jesus says, Anyone who wants to do the will of my Father will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. See, knowing, knowing that God is at work in all things for good is not primarily a matter of IQ. It's not primarily a matter of information. Jesus said there is this connection between doing and knowing. The way that you come to know is to do. Obedience validates knowing. Let me say that again. Obedience validates knowing. When I obey, when I trust, that's when I come to see that it's really true. When I refuse to obey, I I I miss it. I never get to know it. When I obey God, I find out that the law of God, the will of God in my life, the will that is for my own good, it leads leads to the good things happening in me. So when I obey God about things like generosity, when I'm generous, then I get to know that, in fact, it really is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not just a line in a book. When I trust God with my sexuality, then I come to know 
that to have a woman in my life with whom I'm faithful, to be chaste, to be honoring God, it doesn't... It doesn't mess up other people. I don't leave a train wreck of, of broken bodies and broken hearts in my wake. And really, it is the best way to live. And I come to know that. Because first, I learn to obey God in that. When I start speaking the truth, even though it's going to be hard, even though sometimes it's going to land me in trouble. But I realize when I go to bed at night, that my conscience is clear, that there's integrity in my person. I come to know something about myself and about God, but I only came to know it because I stepped out in obedience. There's this old hymn. I thought maybe a lot of people wouldn't know it. I grew up with it, but I checked with Angie, and and it turns out maybe you do know it. Uh, And so we're going to sing it in just a couple of minutes. But I wanted to quote a couple of the lines from this old hymn, because maybe you've heard it. Hymn writer says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what glory he sheds on our way. And when we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all of us who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I mean, let's be honest. Don't we want that? I mean, don't we want to be happy? We all want good stuff to happen to us. But true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction really happens when that good stuff is happening in us. And we can know that. And we can know it when we trust and obey. Well, folks, we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking this promise of God. I hope you will learn it, repeat it. We know this, that in all things, God is at work for good for those who love him. We're going to learn to recognize how that applies when trouble happens, when a growing season happens, when grace happens, when healing happens, when the twists and turns of life take us in directions we had never imagined. But maybe one little take-home exercise for this week. I invite you to do kind of an audit this week, an inventory. Take a look at the things that are happening to you. When you wake up, when you wake up in the morning, do a little inventory. It doesn't have to be big stuff. But when you go to work, maybe there's a traffic jam. When you're at work, maybe there's frustration. Maybe there's criticism in your life. When you're tempted to lie, when you feel discouraged, stop for a moment. Remember the verse and ask the question How could God be at work in this for my good? Because to be clear, stuff happens. But we also know that God happens. And God is bigger than stuff. Let me pray for you.
I invite you to, to bow your head, to take a breath and imagine as you're inhaling that that, that breath itself is a reminder of God who inspired both his written word that we have read this morning and the living word, Jesus Christ, who's present in your life and in the room where you're sitting even now. Spirit is with you now. Spirit of boldness and tenderness. Christ can make you bold to obey. He can be there in tenderness when the hard season comes. And he never leaves you alone. Lord Jesus, in prayer we reach out and surround each other this morning with the awareness of your presence. We want to name and recognize those for whom these verses aren't just theory. They're hanging on for dear life to the promise that despite what they see, what they feel, that you are still at work in their lives and that you're doing a good work in them. And we pray that the fruit of that work, that it would be abundant, that it would be evident. And God, that it it would be the gift that can be received even when the circumstances are perilous. And for others, God, maybe the season isn't so dark. And there are good things happening to us. We want to honor you in that. But we pray, God, it doesn't distract us from the greater work that you're doing within. And so, God, we leave room for the movement of your spirit. Come work within us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.